Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. I'm John Lancaster, as always, joined by Matt McKenna. Matt, how you doing over there? I'm good. Just uh, once again, excited for another great guest today and excited to talk about your article. Yes, I, I am excited for both of those things, but especially our guest. It's going to be a good one. Um, yeah, so I did write an article. Uh, I wrote an article on the military-industrial-congressional complex, kind of yeah. breaking down how this all works. Yeah, so, and so the title is Tackling the Military-Industrial-Congressional Complex. And I like that you included the congressional complex. Uh, most people hear that phrase and usually associate with the military-industrial complex. You've extended it to the congressional complex, and that's going to play directly into our conversation today. And I believe you were referencing a particular speech. Uh, so you start this article referencing uh, a famous speech, arguably his most famous speech, of Dwight D. Eisenhower, a speech he gave at the very end of his term uh, that many people associate with that term military-industrial complex uh, or mili- your phrasing military-industrial-congressional complex. So what did he say and why is it still relevant today? Yeah, I mean, I think the congressional piece has become, you know, now looking <laughs> looking at it, more accepted when when Dwight when Dwight D Eisenhower made this speech, you know he warned of a military industrial complex. And to answer your question, what he stated was quote that a conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. Unquote. And so, you know, this is totally relevant to to today. It's it's unfortunate that Eisenhower being a product of the military, right? Going to West Point, he was a captain in World War One. He was the Supreme Commander in World War Two, chief joint of staff afterwards, is using his final speech to warn about this military industrial complex that he sees coming. And it's quite obvious from the data that we have not listened. <laughs> so yeah, I think it, it's extremely prescient in this moment. We are very much in an economic crisis. We we have people who are both suffering from the coronavirus uh, uh, effects on the economy, but also, it, like we like to remind people, the economy for many people wasn't working prior to the coronavirus. Uh, so, I would what I want to know is how much exactly are we spending on quote unquote defense? And you talk a lot about the opportunity cost. So. In terms of what we are spending and we, the American taxpayer, on quote-unquote defense, what are the numbers like? And, and of course, that comes at an opportunity cost. What could that money be spent on? And you listen you some great examples. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the defense budget is – it depends how you calculate it. But at, at a conservative estimate, uh, my calculations were about $780 billion. Now, if you include really everything – that defense uh, touches, you know, such as Department of Veterans Affairs, Department of Homeland Security, all of that, you're going over a trillion. But for for my, you know, for the purposes of my calculations, including the DOD budgets, you know, the State Department security assistance budgets, and how much we spend uh, keeping a nuclear arsenal, we're looking at $780 billion. And to, again, to put that in reference, that's more than the next 10 top spending countries combined. So we're spending a ton of money. And like you said, at the expense of other things. In fact, you know, speaking of Eisenhower, he made a speech as well called, uh, you know, uh, chance, at, uh, chance at Peace, where he mentioned the opportunity cost. But in brief, that $780 billion could go to, obviously, any of the progressive programs that would actually help working class Americans. You know, we're talking Medicare for All, Green New Deal. If it were applied to that, it's the program's already half-funded without any additional you know, taxes, without any additional revenue. Um, if you're looking at tuition-free college, that's it's it's done many over you know m- many times over. But I think it's I think it's even worth looking at you know dis- despite you know or, or aside from those big progressive policies, just like general world problems or national problems at at large, for example, homelessness. 
we could we could solve with twenty billion dollars. So that's two and a half percent of the current defense budget. You know, we could stop hunger in America six times over. We could stop world hunger three times over. We could pay for food stamps 11 times over for all 28 million Americans. So we're talking enormous costs, not just actual costs. Of course, $780 billion is an enormous amount. But we're also talking about we're taking away from programs or from spending that could actually tangibly help um, you know, actual citizens. So, right. And, you know, when you put it like that, it, it just becomes so obvious that we are misplacing our funds and, and, and by consequence, we are misplacing our priorities or maybe it's the other way around. Uh, maybe our, our priorities are misplaced and therefore we misplace our tremendous funds in the military. Uh, but what I want to ask is, I'm going to just play devil's advocate because I know we, we've come from such a militarized culture in the United States. People will, uh, there's a couple of ways they'll defend this level of, of budget, uh, this extremely bloated budget. And one thing they'll say is that, well, we want to support our troops. We want to ensure that the people serving in the military are given the best best protections, given the best uh, equipment. And the other thing they'll say is that, well, it, the military, spending this much on our military is keeping us safe. So let's, but let's address that first issue for, uh, about the troops. So people saying that spending this much on the military is going to make sure our troops are protected and have the best equipment. What do you think of that? And I know you articulated this in the article. Yeah, and I think, you know... <laughs> I think when we look at the defense budget, there's a lot of nefariousness that goes on. And that's why I'm, I'm really excited to speak to our guests later to talk a, a bit about that. But when we look at, you know, the arguments of, you know, we need to def- or we need to fund the defense budget because we have to support our troops uh, or it has to keep us safe. We have to be clear about where where all of this money is going. Uh, so about half of this money, so about $370 billion are going straight to corporations, private contractors, weapons contractors. Um, about uh, about half of that is actually going to soldiers. So when we talk about you know funding defense, we're really talking about funding private contractors. Um, and you know there's a whole other bit that you you mentioned at the end there about it keeping us safe. You know th- that opens a whole another door about you know we are the largest exporter of weapons in the world. And if you think more weapons makes us more safe, uh, you, you're mistaken. You know, you look at the bases that we have around the world, which we can talk about, but we have 800 military bases around the world. Compare that to the about 30 the rest of the world has collectively. Um, and these bases, again, are, are causing problems. They're not making us safer. A lot of countries, you know, very understandably, Lot of, at least the, the citizens in those countries don't want those bases on on foreign land. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. Like, could you imagine another another country building a military base in in the continental United States, or Maybe, even near the United States, right? Or even like, near, right? Right. Like if we garrison the borders of China and Russia and North Korea and Iran, you know, there's that hilarious meme that was going around last year, or. Iran, when we almost went to war with Iran, and there's all these, there's a map of all the U.S. military bases, and people were joking around like, "How dare Iran put their country in between all of our military bases?" <laughs> it's like, look where these incidents that almost lead to war or do lead to war happen, right? It's right. Like yeah. The U.S. military in the Gulf of Tonkin. There's an incident, or actually, not even a real incident, but an alleged incident happens that leads to war in the Gulf of Tonkin, not the Gulf of Mexico, right? Look at. Uh, you know, the, our, our, our almost war with Iran last year, Iran shot down a drone uh, in the June of 2019 in Iranian or near Iranian territory. It's still disputed. You know, you know, at some point, we need to be aware that we are doing extremely provocative actions by placing our bases so and our military actions so close to the proximity of other countries. And it it, it just seems to be this thing lost that we would never accept that. And we would feel threatened by that. Any small fraction of that, right? We almost went to nuclear war when the Russians, the Soviets placed uh, missiles 
in Cuba. And yet it never works the other way that we would understand others would feel that way. I think, I think that's an excellent example. And I, I want to go back to that original question you asked, but I think like Americans can see that as being, you know, justified the fear that America felt once the Soviet Union started building a base on Cuba, but can't extend that logic to, you know, perhaps, Ru- or perhaps Russia or China or Iran might feel threatened of us building literally hundreds of bases on their, you know, on the perimeter. Um, but going back to your question about, you know, does this keep us safe? Obviously, what we're talking about the bases here, the answer is no. And unfortunately, the answer is also like the military budget is is so high because of these private contractors, right? They're, they are making, they have the most to gain out of this. Um, and they're getting literally hundreds of billions of dollars from this forever war and from this war state that we're building. And, well, it's important to, to realize as well that it's a manipulated game. And you go into this in, in many ways in the article, but just briefly, can you, uh, I know we don't have time to go through all the specific examples yeah. and people should read the article in the context of empire.com, but just, just let people know how manipulated this game is. This is, you know, when people think this is for, for protection, just lend us a, a clue as to how these private contractors manipulate this system to ensure they make huge profits. And, and when we say huge profits, we mean billions of dollars. We're talking about uh, CEOs of these companies making upwards of $20 million a year. We're talking humongous process and it's rigged. And you've talked about how that system is rigged. And maybe we can uh, spend our last few minutes just talking about the various ways that the private weapons industry has rigged the game. Yeah, sure. I mean, Unfortunately, like many big industries, they can't, you know, they donate to campaigns. They spend millions of dollars lobbying. So in total, they've donated about uh, about $27 million to campaigns in the past year or so. And in terms of lobbying, they've paid almost $80 million just to lobby for politicians to continue, um, you know, pumping money into the defense industry. And they're very particular with who they who they donate to. Um, and who they lobby. So, you know, they, they look at both the House and the Senate for the House House Committee on Armed Services. Um, and they they make sure that they are the top donor to the chairs of both of those committees in both the Senate and the House. Um, probably more nefarious is like what what is called the revolving door, which is people from government going into uh, executive positions in these private contractors or vice versa. And oftentimes it's multiple movements between these. Um, and I mentioned a study where if you look at, you know, these private uh, contracting corporations, there's 645 instances of, you know, either government policymakers going into executive or lobbying positions for one of these companies and then back into government afterwards. And it's really a, a huge problem in terms of actually making a competent policy when you have such conflicts of interests. Um, and then the last big one, I think, I mean, there's obviously many, but the last big one is just over overpricing everything. Uh, you know, I talk about some, some crazy prices that Lockheed in, in particular charges, but for, for example, $640 for a toilet seat, like a plastic toilet seat or over $400 for a hammer, $7,000 for a coffee maker. This is what we're looking at when we're looking at like defense contractors uh, pricing out items to make sure they're charging as much as they can to make sure that they're making as much as we, as much as they can. Um, And the other reason why I'm so, uh, you know, I'm so excited to talk to uh, our guest is because he touches on something that I actually don't go into, which is the contributions to think tanks and the role of think tanks in uh, perpetuating this enormous spending in the defense budget. Right. That is something that we, we are going to talk about a lot with our guests today about the, the role that think tanks play in writing uh, legislation that ends up being policy, uh, right? And, you know, uh, certainly influencing politicians and the kinds of things that are said in the halls of power. And last thing uh, that you really say so well is that this all is at the cost. Uh, and of course, there's the obvious cost, right? You know, you've already summed up. This does not protect us. You are enriching uh, by doing this, we are enriching a very small group of people who make money off of war, right? They're, and they've rigged the game to content, to ensure that they continue to make tremendous sums of money off of war while at the opportunity cost of not funding 
very beneficial social programs here at home. But last thing I think you should uh, briefly talk about is this idea of killing diplomacy, that we've militarized our foreign policy, because that's that's really what you some final thoughts you end the this article with. And I thought it was really interesting the the way you broke down the cost of the of the lack of diplomacy. So can you just speak for a minute about that before we introduce our guests? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the conclusions I come to is the result of all of this basically is that diplomacy becomes military action. When you have 800 bases around the world, when you have a ginormous defense industry, you know, obviously pumped because of these private contractors, you have a complete breakdown of actual diplomacy and instead you have military action. And, you know, that consider that we only have about 300 embassies worldwide and compare that to the 800 bases we have worldwide. And, you know, the priorities are are pretty clear there. Um, And kind of what we were mentioning before, like having all of these bases, you mentioned the the Gulf of Tonkin, there is so much opportunity for miscommunication. There's so much opportunity for uh, intervention and possible, you know, one-off attacks from groups that, you know, aren't representative of a country. There's so much that could go wrong with those bases and with a giant military behind it that, again, it's going to be more of the same where we have, our, you know, politicians and also these defense contractors searching for the next quote-unquote enemy to drag uh, a middle-class American to a war that – a war against a country that never was a threat in the first place. And I think that's right. why, you know, we should really care about this. Yeah, when everything, uh, sorry, when when you have a hammer, which is our military, everything looks like a nail. So when you have a problem and you have this giant military, everything looks like a military solution and we don't give peaceful diplomacy a chance. Uh, And that's, uh, that we could say so much more. And you talked about the cost to the environment, uh, you know, all the specific social programs, but you got to read the article, everybody. You got to go to intercontextofempire.com and read this because- John uh, included all kinds of data and charts, graphs, uh, and and he really did a, a great job explaining to the reader just just how much this is costing us. And I mean us as in not just Americans, but the people of the world. This causes tremendous harm to our our existence on this planet. So, John, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest because the, he his topic of expertise is extremely relevant to what you wrote about. So why don't you go ahead and introduce who we're talking to today? We have a very special guest on today. We're very excited to speak with him. Today we have Dr. Ben Freeman, who is the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy and also the author of the Foreign Policy Auction. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much for having me, Matt and John. Thank you. Ben, you know, you've been investigating the role of money in foreign policy for many, many years, you know, previously serving a uh, national security fellow at the Project on Governmental Oversight. You were deputy director of national security program at Third Way. We're interested in what kind of drew you to this issue. And now also in your current role, um, you know, as the director of the uh, uh, Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative, what is the work that you're currently doing there now? So kind of like, what got you into this? What are you doing now? Yeah, man, that's a great question. Um, and kind of the short answer is I like, I like to say that I'm a foreign influence hipster uh, in that <laughs> I, I was into looking at it before it was cool. Uh, I started first looking at in, in investigating foreign in, interference uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, all the way back around uh, 2006. And if, if we really trace back my origins to it, it actually really started before that um, uh, with, with the Iraq War. Um, and I'll, I, I, I will confess that despite this political career that I have now, um, I was a business major in college. Uh and I, I started out, I was looking to go into the family business. My mom literally sells seashells by the seashore. Um, <laughs> and so I, I wanted to open a gift shop. You know, it seemed like a great life, you know, selling shells uh, at the beach. And I wanted to do the same thing. Uh, but then 9-11 happened um, and then the, the Iraq War happened. And I, I really fundamentally uh, disagreed uh, w- with the decision to invade Iraq. Um, and as I started digging into it a little more, I... Uh, very quickly discovered Saudi influence and everything that uh, the the Saudi lobby uh, had been doing 
to effectively cajole us in, in, into invading Iraq. Um, then despite the fact that 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, not Iraq. Um, and so ever since that, that, that point on, I, I got out of the old business game, uh, went into political science, uh, and, and then embarked on a, a PhD where I was investigating uh, foreign influence. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, played a very prominent role in my dissertation, uh, w- which eventually became a book. Um, but as I, I, I often joke about my book, too, is that, you know, I wrote a book on, on, on the foreign influence industry in, in 2012. Uh, it, it was published. And not to belittle the book, I think it's fantastic, uh, but nobody cared at the time, uh, if I'm perfectly honest about it. Foreign influence was not a concept that, that, that people really understood. People didn't perceive it as being a, a, a threat or an issue that the U.S. should care about. That all, of course, changed in 2016 uh, with Russian interference in the elections. And then you know, foreign influence and foreign interference became household terms. Um, and that was really the, the the decision point for me where I said that, uh, you, know, you know, my phone was ring, ringing off the hook, number one, as one of the very few people um, who had actually dug into this. Uh, but, but number two, I, I, I saw it as an opportunity where, you, you know, I, I, I had to give back. I had to share the, the, this research and this the, the, these analytical skills that I had um, to try to prevent something like this from happening again and to awaken people to the reality that this sort of thing happens every day. Yeah, and thank you for mentioning the the renewed influ- interest in foreign influence uh, as of 2016. And of course, a lot of that has been uh, revealed to be somewhat hysterical. Uh, and uh, I like that you phrased that you were you were doing it before it was cool. And I think what you're going to get to, maybe you can correct me, but uh, what you're going to eventually tell us is if you were looking for foreign influence uh, in terms of affecting American policy, you better look, there's places better to look than Russian influence. And uh I think that that's something that you have done an especially good job on. But just broadly speaking, this may seem like an obvious question to you, but just to people who aren't as well versed in this, like uh, John and myself, why should Americans care about foreign influence in in, uh, whether we're talking about funding of think tanks or politicians themselves? Why is this such an important issue to tackle that you've devoted so much research and time to? That, 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 that is a great question. Um, and the, I think the simple answer, the simple answer is actually a scary answer in that uh, foreign governments uh, affect just about every asset, uh, or, or foreign governments affect every facet of U.S. policies. Um, and the, 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 every major foreign policy uh, decision that we've had, at least in my lifetime, um, has has been affected uh, by by foreign influence has been affected by the by the lobbyists the PR folks the think tanks funded by foreign governments and and, and when I say it's been affected by it I don't mean that as like oh you know they kind of turn the dial a little bit you, you know no big deal not a big thing um, in, in the course of my career I, I, I've documented lobbyists uh, literally writing speeches for members of Congress. They're, they're, they're writing talking points that members of Congress ultimately say uh, they even go so far as to actually write uh, our laws. They write legislation. They work with congressional staffers uh, to introduce laws that are of benefit to these foreign governments. And then those those members of Congress will actually introduce those pieces of legislation uh, that were literally written by lobbyists working on behalf of foreign governments. Um, and, and so you name it, every the the as big or as small as influence is in Washington, D.C., chances are a foreign lobbyist ha- has touched it and has helped to shape it. Right. And I don't want this to be interpreted by any of us as, you know, this fear of foreign or xenophobia kind of thing. It's actually the opposite. Uh, what we're what your what I would categorize your entire work is, is we're worried about especially the militarism that uh that our country displays around the world before the podcast, you talked about the Iraq war. I think during the podcast, you talked about the Iraq war and the influence the other countries had in driving the United States into that conflict. This is actually motivated by really progressive values of not wanting our incredibly dangerous military used in ways that are a, not in the interest of the American people, but of course 
not in the interest of marginalized people around the planet. And so the work you're doing uh, is incredibly important to ensuring that the military, the, the incredible power the U.S. has is actually used in a way that benefits people in the United States and, of course, doesn't hurt people abroad. Matt, that's it. That, like that is I, I could not have said it, said it better myself, um, because at the end of the day, the the, the, the American people are, are largely uh, the, they're pacifists. They, they, they don't want they don't want to send us over and, and, and start another uh, you know, misadventure on foreign soil. It's it's very much it's the politicians in many cases. It's the the, the elite class in D.C. who who tend to you know trip and fall our way in, 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 into these foreign misadventures, and this is where this is where we see foreign lobbyists really sinking their teeth into, and and, and, and this is really the focus of, of so much of my work. You know, it's uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, my interest in this uh, topic started with a foreign mis- misadventure. It started with the Iraq war and how uh, the, the, the Saudi government helped to lead us into that war. And, and it really continues to this day. And you think about the, the, the war in Yemen, for example, where, where, where the U.S. Is, is, uh, is supporting Saudi forces there still, was previously supporting UAE forces there as well. It's the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, uh, I, I guess, with the exception of COVID, we might say, the, the, the global pandemic. Um, but, but it's just, just this disastrous conflict where the U.S. is complicit in. And, and what we've shown is that one of the reasons that the U.S. has stayed involved in this is precisely because the, the Saudis spend tens of millions of dollars lobbying our government for us to stay involved in it. Um, and if you ask most American people, they don't want us to be involved in Yemen. You know, they don't want us sending troops over there to fight. Like, it's, it's very much not in their interest. So what we're trying to do at the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative, we're, we're in, in Center for, the Center for International Policy, where we're housed out, out of, our model, you, you know, it says in our motto, is, is to advance a, a peaceful, just, and sustainable world. And to make that the center goal of U.S. foreign policy. Um, so then my, my small little chunk of that then um, at, at, at FIDI, we call my program. Um, at, at FIDI, what we're trying to do, we're trying to expose those lobbying uh, adventures that would lead us astray abroad, that, that would lead our foreign policy uh, in a more militarized direction that re- is really antithetical to a lot of American interests. Yeah. And, you know, the work is, is so important. So we want to thank you, for, you know, first for doing this work. Um, and you mentioned kind of, you know, <laughs> that this really only came to the forefront in 2016 with the talk of Russian influence. We heard it in this past election a little bit about Iran. Um, but when you when you actually dive into it, what what countries have you found are actually exerting the most influence on American politics? And you, you, you did mention Saudi Arabia there for a moment. But what countries are you seeing um, are actually influencing politics here? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I, I, so, so many people spend so much time on Russia, um, and, and I think appropriately so. After 2016, you know, we sort of know what the Russians did. Um, very malevolent actors. A lot of people focus on China, too. Another very malevolent actor. Um, but, but on the flip side of that, the, there's a reason you, you, you never really hear uh, or you don't hear much about um, the great Russian lobbying firm or, or, or the great Chinese lobbying firm, um, because they don't really exist. The, 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 the Russians and the Chinese, uh, you, you know, they're frankly, when it comes to influencing the American system, um, they're actually not that savvy. And, and, and this is why the Russians had to interfere in the election, because they don't have this everyday influence machine built in like many other countries do. I, and I would think if we're talking about the most influential, I, I spent a lot of time, uh, as I mentioned, on Saudi Arabia, UAE and Qatar. Um, of course, in the Middle East, another uh, major player is Israel. Um, and I think we, we've all certainly heard about the, the Israel lobby and, and the amazing sway uh, that they have over U.S. foreign policy, too. And, and, and they're sort of an interesting um, influence operation compared to some others, because a lot of a lot of Israel's influence um, is from Israeli Americans. And, and so it's sort of, you know, homegrown influence here in terms of who we see under the, the, the Foreign Agents Registration Act is our our sort of principal law that we have that, that, that governs uh, foreign lobbying. 
the big spenders there, actually, none of the countries I've mentioned so far. Um, it's actually uh, uh, prominent U.S. allies. Japan and South Korea are year in and year out. They are the biggest spenders. They are by far uh, the, the, the big dogs on the block when it comes to foreign influence operations. And, and I, I'll give you a shameless plug uh, now that we, we, we just released a report on, on Japan's lobbying operation. And it, it's the, to, to my knowledge, it's, it's the first comprehensive report on Japan's influence operation in the U.S. Um, and, and the numbers are just astounding. Um, it, it, it's over $37 million in spending uh, in just one year, uh, we tracked over 3,000 political activities by Japan's lobbyists and PR firms uh, in just one year. Uh, they contacted nearly half of Congress. I mean, it, it literally uh, half of all congressional offices uh, had communications with a foreign agent working for Japan. Um, and, and so they might be, you know, might be considered an ally. In, 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 and that's, you know, we can certainly value our relationship with Japan. But what we found is that even in that relationship, a lot of what they're doing is driving a more militarized foreign policy. There's a lot of China fear mongering within their lobbying activities. They're trying to keep the desperately trying to keep U.S. bases open and running and even growing there. Uh, And they're also trying to make sure uh, we continue to subsidize those bases there. Um, and they're making sure that U.S. arms sales keep flowing uh, by the billions uh, to, to Japan as well. So on the whole, e- even though it's an ally, it's still a really strong push for a more militarized U.S. foreign policy. Right. And uh, of course, while most Americans probably consider Japan and South Korea fairly benign actors, this fund, this uh, level of lobbying and funding and influence, of course, could become nefarious pretty quickly when we talk about the the potential for armed conflict uh, either with China or North Korea becoming increasingly likely as as both countries become see see themselves surrounded militarily uh, North Korea already very much surrounded militarily uh, conflict of course like uh, the likelihood of conflict always arises once you garrison someone's borders with your military and and uh, so while we see those countries as benign now, the conflicts could arise pretty quickly just based on what they're lobbying for and uh, kind of switching very much in the same vein. We want to talk about two of the papers that, that you've written uh, recently or the studies, the, the, the kind of you can talk about these as you see fit. But, of course, we want to continue talking about the foreign funding of think tanks in America. That's a, uh, a great study that you were part of. And along with the. Uh, the more recent funding, the more recent project, the U.S. government and defense contractor funding of America's top 50 think tanks. But in both of these, if I'm not mistaken, we're talking about think tanks here. And, you know, that seems like a word that most Americans probably or a term that most Americans probably don't understand is so important. But think tanks are incredibly important. And it's like, well, why should we care who funds think tanks? What do think tanks do? So whether it's Raytheon funding the Atlantic Council, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, or the Saudis pouring a ton of money into Think Tank X. Why why does that matter? What do think tanks do that affects politics? Yeah, Matt, it's it's funny you say that because I've recently moved to Florida from D.C., and people down here ask, well, what do you do? And my, of course, my, my D.C. response is, oh, I work at a think tank. And everybody in D.C. knows what that means. Everybody down here in Florida is like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, what are you, like a fish tank? Uh, no, no. <laughs> I'm like, no, they like, they pay me to think. And they're like, really? Like, like that's a real job? And, and I get it because it's a, what, what think tanks do is, is really a foreign concept to a lot of people. Um, and frankly, it should be. Uh, but in a nutshell, what, what think tanks do, uh, th- th- think tanks are nonprofit organizations that, that they serve as something of kind of a, uh, a, a middle ground b- between academia, but between the really, really academic kind of policy uh, nerds um, and the federal government. And, and, and so in some ways, though, th- think tanks will conduct their own research or in, in a lot of cases, they'll take academic research or, or, or partnerships that are already going on, um, and they'll sort of translate that research for for folks that are in policy making positions, whether it's you know somebody in Congress or you know somebody in the executive branch or you know State Department, DOD, that sort of thing. Um, and, and so they can serve as as kind of translators. 
Um, now that's kind of think tanks in theory, what I just gave you. Think tanks in practice is, and this is going to sound a lot like what I what I said when I talked about uh, foreign uh, foreign lobbyists. Uh, think tanks they they will write speeches for members of Congress. They will write talking points for members of Congress. Uh, they will provide background research for for hearings that are coming up, uh, and in some cases that they will literally help to write legislation uh, for members of Congress. Um, and, and if they tell you that, if anybody ever tells you that they don't, uh, that's a lie. I, I have worked at three think tanks now, and I have personally done it. So I know, I know for a fact that this, but, but all good laws, I swear, it's all it's all foreign influence uh, transparency legislation uh, that, that I've helped folks with. But I know for a fact that think tanks are doing this work. And so that, that's why think tanks are so important. Now, to, to the second part of that, that the, the first part is actually why we should care about the second part. We should care about that funding because that funding, in very many cases, determines uh, the type of work that people do and how much they do it. And this is why I was particularly concerned about foreign government funding of think tanks. Um, because we know working at think tanks that you, 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 your funding matters. It can affect what you do. And so if you're getting a considerable amount of money from a foreign power, that, that very likely will change your work uh, in, in ways that are a benefit to that foreign power. I mean, at the end of the day, if, uh, say, the United Arab Emirates is giving you millions of dollars a year, you, your think tank, um, you're going to be a lot less likely to say bad things about the United Arab Emirates. Um, and this is certainly what we've seen from, from think tanks that are funded, in fact, by the United Arab Emirates. Um, so what we tried to do is to provide a level of transparency to this. And the real problem that we have right now is think tanks aren't required to disclose their funders. They, they can be totally tra- or totally non-transparent. This is the darkest of dark money. There's There, there can be literally no trail here when a foreign government makes a contribution uh, to, to a think tank. Um, in, in the think tank, it's not required to report this to the IRS. They don't have to publicly disclose this. Um, so they can really, really hide this from the American public. What we're trying to do is to kind of sh- to shine a dark light on some of these shady practices and, and expose this funding um, when think tanks don't reveal it, and then to track it when think tanks do reveal it. There, there's a good growing trend of think tanks being more transparent here. So we're spending a lot of time lately, um, you, you know, uh, uh, accumulating that and trying to figure out, you know, you know where this kind of crazy hodgepodge of, of foreign money is coming from. And then, and then real quick, uh, and then I'll stop blabbing about it, but <laughs> the, the, the top line number here, uh, we, we tracked just the top 50 think tanks um, in, in just the past few years. And we identified $174 million in foreign funding coming from think tanks. Uh, it's just an extraordinary amount of money that's coming in. Yeah, and that again, that's really, really important to understand and how that foreign money influences those think tanks and then influences legislation. Um, but if we we're going to like isolate some of those think tanks, you know, some people, you know, might be familiar with a few of them, like Brookings or something like that. But when we start isolating, you know, the major think tanks, um, like which ones are taking a large and large amounts of money from foreign countries? Um, it's, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Brookings. Um, the, 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 the interesting thing about it is, um, and I feel free to talk about Brookings, my significant other works there. Um, <laughs> um, and, and before COVID, I was on their softball team. Um, a lot of great softball players, too. A lot, a lot of good folks at Brookings. Uh, but Brookings does take a significant amount of money uh, from foreign governments. In fact, millions of dollars a year. And, and, and Brookings has an exclusive category of donors where, where you really don't see at other think tanks because you know Brookings is so big. They have a category of donors that uh, is literally listed as two million dollars and above, and, and it's just a fascinatingly large sum. Uh, but every single year that we tracked, uh, the government of Qatar w- was in that $2 million and above category. And in fact, Brookings has a branch office um, in Doha in Qatar, too. Hmm. Uh, so, so it's an extraordinary amount of money going to Brookings. Uh, there's also the Atlantic Council that, that, that gets a fantastic amount of money uh, from, uh, uh, from different foreign governments. Uh, uh, the Carnegie Endowment, uh, the German Marshall Fund are, are other big players in this space, too. Um, and of course, the uh, sort of country uh, specific locations like uh, the, the Asia Policy Institute, 
Um, and the, the Middle East Institute um, is is one of my favorites to call out um, b- because they they become more transparent with their funding recently. Um, but, but it was exposed a couple of years ago that they accepted a a secret twenty million dollar contribution from the United Arab Emirates uh, without disclosing it. And we've tracked a lot of the work that the Middle East Institute has done related to the UAE. Um, and, and almost without fail, uh, their coverage of the UAE is just incredibly positive uh, and incredibly uncritical. And, and that has consequences, as we've talked about with the war in Yemen. You know, the UAE played a big role in the war in Yemen, yet it's incredibly hard to find somebody at the, the Middle East Institute uh, to fault the UAE for what, for what they've done in Yemen. Right. And you mentioned, you know, places like the Atlantic Council, the Brookings Institute. Uh, and of course, there's other ones, the Rand Corporation, uh, CNAS, and all the all these places are, are taking some form of either private contractor or foreign money. And, and you know, like we can't underscore this enough. We had uh, an activist, Shireen Al-Adimi, on the podcast a few weeks ago to talk about the Yemen crisis. And, you know, her and, and many other people are calling this genocide. And, you know, the idea that we the United States is deeply complicit in it that is in no small part to politicians and think the think tanks that write legislation for them influencing the way they think and th- the bottom line is if you can't say anything negative about Saudi Arabia or the UAE then it's going to be pretty hard to uh, push forward a policy to stop selling to stop selling them weapons uh, it, you can't exactly. even run the first word about it. <laughs> Exactly. I, I, and, and, and really, Yemen, I, I mean, frankly, you know, it gets it, it upsets me so much. And I, I, I can't even I, I, I just see the lobbying side of the Yemen war. And, and, and that upsets me so much because, you know, what what we've tracked from related to Yemen is lobbying for for these specific weapons that we know have been used in airstrikes in Yemen that have killed civilians. And, and, you know, we see these lobbyists lobbying for, for these uh, explicit weapons, the, the, the paveway bombs, and, 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 and arguing for more arms sales to Saudi Arabia of the exact weapons Saudi Arabia is using to kill civilians in Yemen. Um, I, I, you know, I study lobbyists for a living, and so I feel like I'm numb to their, their sort of game uh, some days. But when it comes to this, it really makes me wonder if, if, if you are literally lobbying to sell weapons that, that are going to be used to kill innocent civilians. I don't know how you sleep at night. Um, the, the only answer I have to it is that, you know, if you're going to do that sort of stuff, um, I'm sure as heck going to tell people that you're doing that stuff. So at the very least, we, we, we can all shame you for, for basically being a, a partner to this tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, we were mentioning think tanks, you're bringing up lobbying, and these are different forms uh, or different avenues in which, you know, foreign influence comes through. And are there there other ways that you see, you know, foreign nations or foreign actors attempting to influence legislation, um, whether that be, you know, through media or some other way? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, And and frankly, it's... Dare I say it's the it, it's the heyday for foreign influence. Um, it's really in, for, for for a variety of reasons. It, it, it's really never been easier to 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 garner in, influence in America uh, for for a foreign power. Um, you, you know, I, I I spend most of my time tracking the the registered lobbyists uh, and, and, and you know tracking the think tanks that we know about. There's plenty of unregistered lobbyists uh, that, that are operating out there that are working for these foreign governments uh, that, that we may not even find out about, um, you know, for a year or two years from now when we when we see the FBI indictment of, of these folks for doing this work. Um, and certainly on the think tanks, they're, 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 there's all this money that isn't disclosed because they don't have to disclose it. Another huge, huge venue that we're seeing um, is in academia and the, the there's been this pressure in academia because, you know, colleges and universities, they're, they, they've been going through this financial crunch now uh, for, for more than a decade. Um, and part of the way they, they've worked to fill that vacuum is turning to foreign governments. And foreign governments, in many cases, have been all too willing to help fund um, America's elite colleges and universities. Um, and so we see staggering amounts of money. The, the Department of Education tracks data and all this. 
Um, and, and we've seen almost $10 billion uh, in funding uh, from uh, foreign governments to America's higher education system uh, in just the past six years. Um, and some of uh, uh, huge chunks of that funding are coming from a lot of the folks we've already mentioned. Uh, the biggest contributor in, 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 into the American education system from abroad is Qatar. Uh, China's, China's a big spender. The UAE is a big spender. Saudi Arabia is a big spender. And, and when we're talking about funding of the education system, you know, it's not this isn't just a pay tuition payments for, for, for foreign students. Right. This really buys foreign powers access in, in, in many cases. And one example is when Mohammed bin Salman came on uh, his big whirlwind trip to the U.S. in 2018. Uh, this was just a few months before the, the, the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, he got great photo ops at Harvard and MIT. Um, did he, you know, just go to go to Boston and say, you know, wow, I want to see Harvard? Uh, no, <laughs> Saudi Arabia is a big donor to these universities, and so they, they actually, you know, welcomed him with open arms there and, and held events to welcome him, precisely wow. because this funding helps to helps to grease the wheels to make that happen. What, one other yeah. avenue that we've seen lately. Oh, <laughs> Is on uh, is on social media, and of course, there's hmm. this is so incredibly hard to track. Uh, but we're seeing foreign governments, uh, you know, spend heavily on influence operations. Frankly, the social media companies aren't doing nearly enough uh, to to combat uh, election interference. Is one thing, uh, let alone they're, they're doing even worse. I, I assure you, on the day to day foreign influence that's not election related in terms of stymieing that. And Saudi Arabia, for example, has uh, th- th- this now expansive campaign uh, to recruit Instagram influencers to to come to Saudi Arabia on these luxurious trips. Uh, you, you know, they put them up in you know nicest accommodations, nicest meals, uh, wow. and they just want them to they just want them to post about it on Instagram, post these elaborate Instagram stories, and they provide this image of Saudi Arabia that is just absolutely fictitious. Wow. Yeah, and you do a great job breaking down, like giving specific examples. And and as far as the education goes, it, it again, it, like it seems benign. You know the you know the the academy that we think of these people as well, they they just want to learn. They're they're in the higher education, but these are the people that end up affecting policy in major ways. These are the graduates that you know. David Halberston called them the best and the brightest. These are the people that run national security at some point. And you gave one example. Uh, I think it's Bill Smullen. He was the former chief of staff to Colin Powell, was a Saudi funded while he was working at the Maxwell School of National Security Studies at Syracuse University. So literally teaching the people who are eventually going to take positions in our halls of power. And, you know, I don't know what he was teaching, but if he was Saudi funded, I'm, I'm going to guess that he's not going to frame, uh, you know, Saudi policy, whether influencing the United States in their aggression toward Yemen or Iran, for that matter, in a, in a negative light. And of course, we get a class of people graduating from these places that has a particular viewpoint about the necessity to protect Saudi interests and see them as one in, in line with American interests. And something else we wanted to ask you. So there's those examples that maybe people don't think about that much. And thank you for bringing up the education point and social media, because those I think most people don't know those as well. I think what people do are more familiar with is just day to day influencing of politicians. And I'm wondering, like the and you, you've written about this quite a bit, but the actual lobbying of politicians, you know, we've talked about the think tanks, we've talked about education, social media, but. What are some of the ways that they influence individual politicians, campaign funding, uh, you know, writing talking points for them? Uh, and, and of course, I want to know, like, do we have examples of like this actually influencing politicians vote? Because I, I know that that's something that you've also focused on. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of the uh, the, the golden goose for us is, you know, if we can try to identify, you, you know, this leading people to vote a certain way or, or, or to do a, uh, a particular thing a certain way. Um, and, and we do have examples of that. We have we have we have sadly far far too many examples of that. Um, and, and we saw this. Uh, you know, I hate to keep going back to Saudi Arabia, um, or, or do I? No, I don't. I don't. I love going back to Saudi Arabia. Doing it. <laughs> but but in the case of Saudi Arabia, following the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, um, th- th- there were a number of bills introduced um, in-, in the House and Senate that, that would effectively punish uh, the-, the Saudis for what they did, both in-, in terms of getting the U.S. out of the war in Yemen uh, and blocking future arms sales to Saudi Arabia. 
Um, and so what we did, the, 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 those bills um, ultimately passed only to be vetoed by the president. But we, what we did at that point, we, we, we sort of said, like, who could really vote of it? Like, who would, who, who would vote against these bills? Like, these seem so, you know, obvious and, you know, everybody's on board right now. Um, and what we found was that the people who were voting uh, against these bills they had they, almost almost to a person. They had been both contacted by a Saudi lobbyist and had received a campaign contribution uh, from a Saudi lobbyist. And, and, and so this was a case where, where we very much found a you know kind of trifecta of you, you're having these meetings with with these these lobbyists uh, that are working for a foreign power. You, you, you're taking money from them uh, and you're voting the exact way that they would like you to vote, uh, despite a wave of ar- evidence and argumentation saying you should not be doing that. You, you, you're doing it nonetheless. We've seen even more specific examples. You, you, you know, we have cases of, of um, you know, Saudi and UAE lobbyists writing talking points that, that are literally floor speeches that, that are then given by members of Congress. And, and, and you know, we fortunately, there are, our Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, it, it has some pretty good record keeping in it. So, you know, lobbyists, if they if they create something like that, they're, they're required to file a copy of it. Some of them don't, but some do. And they require a copy of this speech that they, you know, help to write. Um, and a pesky nerd like me goes through the DOJ system and, you know, I dig it up and then I go back through the congressional record and then I see, you know, holy heck, you know, that person actually, they gave this exact speech verbatim on the house floor. And so when you find stuff like this, you you realize how powerful this can be because of course the congressman on the house floor didn't, didn't stop at the end and say, this speech brought to you by the government of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know we, we did discuss think tanks, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't go back to it for this one point. And uh, it's funny because I just wrote an article on this and tomorrow I actually have a debate on the defense budget. So, you know, you, you also talk about, um, you know, the private contractor funding of these think tanks and how much private contractors pump into these think tanks. Um, so, you know, what conclusions can you draw about that funding, that private contractor funding of think tanks in specific? Oh, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's immense. We um, uh, in, in the report where we track this, we tracked U- U.S. government and defense contractor funding uh, go- going to the top 50 think tanks again. Um, and we found over a billion dollars in, in funding uh, in just the past six years. Uh, most of that was U.S. government funding. Uh, but we found nearly a uh, hundred million dollars that was that was just coming from defense contractors, um, and, and it was from sort of the, the the usual suspects. Your your big prime contractors, you know, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, uh, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, uh, General Dynamics, uh, uh, Airbus too, even even some you know the foreign contractors. Um, and, and, and really, what we saw in that then was. We took a hard look at the think tanks who, who received the, you know, the lion's share of that funding. And, and that was really the two that stood out were, were CNAS, the Center for a New American Security. They, they were number one in terms of getting that defense contractor funding. And uh, CSIS, the Center for Strategic uh, in, uh, in International Studies. Um, and, and, and with both of those, we... We once again found uh, the, the, the first thing you notice when, when you track that funding and then you go to look at the work that they do is that they are, are very, very unlikely to be critical of the contractors who are providing that funding. In some cases, they do. Um, you, you, know, they, 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 you know, a person here or there might be critical. Um, but, but by and large, the, the message is that they're, they're not going to be critical of some of these weapon systems that, that are just woefully failing. Uh, looking at you, the F-35. Um, <laughs> but they're not going to write those really critical, hard-hitting pieces. And in other cases, we've seen them directly supporting um, some of these weapon systems. And a colleague and I at the at the Center for International Policy, we we, we published an op-ed today, actually, on, on the nuclear weapons lobby. And, and we took a hard look at this nuclear weapons funding. And, you know, there's this trillion dollar nuclear modernization program out there that you know taxpayers are going to be on the hook for over a trillion bucks um and the flip side of that is 
defense contractors seek to make over a trillion dollars if we go through with this nuclear modernization. Um, and it probably won't surprise many of your your listeners to learn that those very same defense contractors who are going to immensely profit from nuclear modernization are funding think tanks, a number of think tanks that are decidedly pro-nuclear modernization. Um, and, and this includes think tanks on both the left and the right. The Heritage Foundation uh, on the right, you know, CNAS on the left, which I mentioned. It doesn't really matter the partisanship of the organization if they're taking this big money from contractors chances are they're saying and doing exactly what those contractors want them to do. Yeah. Right. And, you know, some people hear this who maybe aren't as well-versed as you, and they think, like, well, what do you think? People just want to keep us in forever war? And what, what I always say is like, well, no, it's not that nefarious. They, don't, they won't say that, but it's just most industries and most people tend to support a reality that is most beneficial to them. So, if you are in the weapons business and it's lucrative as it is, you know, we had Steven Semler on tell us that the CEO of Lockheed Martin made something like $20 million a year. Okay. And, uh, and I don't think it's that different. You go down the line, Raytheon, uh, you know, Northrop Grumman, I'm sure it's figures in that range. And if you are in the business of making weapons and we don't have the public shame to that that they did after like World War One, where we, we called these people merchants of death or profiting war profiteers, even though they are, uh, then you kind of just you're going to see threats everywhere. And you're going to you might not you might actually believe it because eventually people believe their own bullshit. Like so if you're in the, in the weapons industry, of course, it pays to say to look for threats where there are no threats. So we have to, we have to always be armed to the teeth in case, uh, you know, the, Russia invades uh, the East coast of the United States. And even though their military budget has been shrinking for the last few years, uh, or China is going to mount an invasion of California. Cause you just always have to be in this reality where there's no, there's no alternative. What are we going to write ourselves out of profit margin? And this, this your point <laughs> inherent problem with this, war for profit system that whether we call it that or not, that's what it is. And uh, that's a nice segue because uh, I don't know how much you've been following uh, the incoming potential uh, foreign policy picks for uh, President-elect Joe Biden, but mm-hmm. I know you did write something. I, I, I couldn't read it because I, I don't subscribe to foreign affairs, but I know you, you are concerned, of course, as we've talked about, about foreign, about foreign influence. Uh, but you're a little concerned about the Joe Biden solution to such a problem. So why can you, would you mind talking about that before, before we get into your actual concerns about a Biden administration, you, you talk specifically about Biden's solution to the problem, uh, and you are proposing something different. Would you mind elaborating on that for us? Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Um, in, in the foreign affairs piece was, was, was way too nerdy anyway, so I can, <laughs> I can hopefully describe it uh, in, in, in a better frame here. Basically, what Joe Biden ha- has proposed um, uh, was a, a giant uh, leap, and, and that was to ban all uh, foreign lobbying, to, to ban all lobbying on behalf of foreign governments. Um, and so I, I'll be candid with you. My, my, my first reaction when I, when I heard that was, yes, like, yeah. like finally, you know, somebody's going to take a stand and, you know, we're going to, we're going to stop all the corruption where, you know, we're going to stop the rot here. Um, but then blissfully, I kept thinking about it a little more and, uh, you quickly realize that, like like many things that uh, uh, seem good on the surface, there were some unintended consequences here that I don't think Biden was fully thinking through. Uh, chiefly, number one, it would very likely be deemed unconstitutional. Um, you, you know, folks have a right to petition their government, even if it's on behalf of somebody else. You know, folks can still petition their uh, petition their government, so it, it would very likely get struck down on legal grounds. Uh, the bigger concern for me, though, was that the the unintended consequence would be that if you outlaw this, that's not actually going to stop people from doing it. They would still do it. They would just do it in secret. They, they, they would take lobbying behind closed doors. It would go from something that's, you know, kind of in the sunlight now to being totally in the darkness. 
so, so people like, you know, pesky people like me couldn't plow through DOJ filings to find that one speech that a congressman made on the House floor. That speech wouldn't even be there anymore because, you know, that would be illegal. Uh, instead, you know, these lobbying firms would find some loophole to get around uh, to, to get around this ban. They, they would call themselves, you know, consultants, uh, you know, advisors or, or whatever newfangled term that they would come up with. Uh, to, to keep doing this work and just not do it transparently. I think the fix is that we need, and because this would lead to less transparency, my, my solution to, uh, to most of these problems is more transparency. We, we, need, to, we need to incentivize people uh, to, to, to file under FARA, to if you are, you are doing this foreign lobbying work, uh, you need to file under FARA, and, and you need to file all your paperwork properly and in a timely manner. R- right now, pe- people talk about FARA enforcement um, be- being too extensive. Uh, I would argue just the opposite. I, I look at FARA filings every single day of my life. Um, people write in hand, you know, they scribble in illegible things in FARA filings. Uh, they file things late um, almost all the time. Uh, and they file incomplete stuff that, that, that is literally illegible sometimes. So I want to improve I want to improve that current system. I want to make it better. If you abolish it, you, you will put everything in the dark. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I, I personally agree. I, I think that we need total transparency with who is funding our politicians, think tanks, etc. cetera. Uh, and of course, you know, in an ideal world, we start getting rid of for-profit war, but, but you know, we'll do one step at a time. Here, <laughs> here. Um, here. <laughs> uh, so we have just a couple more questions. And so I, I know I didn't include this in the outline, but I'm sure you, you are very, uh, in your world, you're probably very much following the current uh, electoral politics, and of course, the election. If you ask most people, the election's been settled, and Joe Biden's going to be the president. And uh, are you? Are, what concerns do you have, especially given your expertise about money in the war industry and how it affects our foreign policy that you've been covering for nearly two decades now? What concerns, or or maybe uh, what? Uh, Possible positives do you see out of uh, a Biden administration, given some of the, you know, nothing's official, but given some of the picks we're seeing discussed for our uh, foreign policy officials? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. I, I really think on, on, you know, on a basic level with, with the Biden administration coming in that the <laughs> it, 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 the Trump administration was especially hard for me because you, you you had a, you had a president who you know takes his first trip abroad to Saudi Arabia, um, gets you know gets wined and dined, and you know they just the absolute royal treatment there. Um, and you know allegedly his son-in-law has, has this very close you know bromance with Mohammed bin Salman, you know this brutal architect of the Yemen War, um, guy who authorized the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, so, so on so many levels, their their connections, the, the Trump administration's connections with the Saudi regime were just so problematic to me. And and we saw some of the ill results of that. And we continue to see them in, in the ongoing war in Yemen. Um, so having that not exist anymore, uh, that, that for me, you know, right off the bat is a huge positive with the Biden administration coming in. Uh, and, and, you know, looking forward to a more balanced foreign policy where we work more uh, we work less with dictators like that and more with our allies. I think it'll be a very positive step. That said, in, in terms of you know our concerns about the military industrial complex, um, I, I think there's very real concerns uh, for me and for other folks in, in the progressive community about the folks we've seen on Biden's transition team uh, going into the, the Pentagon. Um, and frankly, you know, he's released a list of about a dozen folks who are, you know, going to head up the transition team there. Um, I'm sorry, around two dozen folks um, in, in more than organizations with direct ties to the defense industry, um, you know, either directly from, you know, firms that are making profits uh, in the defense industry or they hail from think tanks who we've identified as being, you know, huge recipients of defense contractor money. Um, and specifically, I'm talking about uh, CSIS in, in the Center for a New American Security. Um, the, the, the transition team at the Pentagon is head by, uh, headed by uh, uh, 
uh, Kathleen Hicks, um, who is she's brilliant and, and, and she's an incredibly nice person and everything. Um, but, you know, she comes from she comes from CSIS, who's taken a lot of money from Pentagon contractors. Um, and, and so I have very real concerns about all those people, too. And another one I think who is really you know, kind of flying under the radar, too, is the uh, is Michelle Flournoy, who a lot of folks expect to be um, uh, Biden's uh, secretary of defense. Um, again, uh, Michelle Flournoy is a brilliant person, a brilliant mind in this space. Um, but she, she has made hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars uh, directly from defense contractors. She was the founder of the Center for a New American Security, which we identified as being the, the biggest recipient of defense contractor money. Um, she went on to, to gigs at the Boston Consulting Group, which worked directly, had the, their clients were defense contractors. She then went on to found an organization called West Exec Advisors, uh, which, again, her, their clients were a, a lot of them were defense contractors. Um, so this is somebody who's very much profited directly from this industry. So any sort of illusions I think we have in the progressive community about a person who's made that kind of money, had those connections with the defense industry, suddenly coming in and saying, well, we're going to upend it all and we're going to slash Pentagon spending. I just think that's unrealistic. And I think I, I think it's important for us to call out those connections and to really question, you, you, you know, Joe Biden about appointing so many people with those connections. Right. Thank you for saying that. And, um, you know, Joe Biden himself, his foreign policy, you know, we we'll probably have to do a whole podcast about that at some point in his history. And of course, like the you mentioned the funding, but also the history matters for people like Michelle Flournoy and, you know, maybe Samantha Power and like their history of supporting wars and preemptive strikes and uh, respectively. And uh, but we don't want to keep you forever about that. Uh, the only thing I'll say is like, remember, like the, the foreign influence too, like the especially the kind that you're talking about with the Saudis and Qataris. We're not talking about people who are representative leaders who are representative of the people in those countries. We're talking about very elite people in those countries uh, that have particular interests that are neither in the people of Saudi Arabia and Qatar or the UAE's general interests, nor in the interests of the people of the United States, and of course not in the interests of people in Yemen or Iran, for that matter. The places that are that are being driven by these uh, to they are being driven to be have U.S. belligerents uh, put uh, faced against them by the leaders of these very autocratic countries. Right. Yeah, that's extremely important to note. And I know we are out of time, but I want to thank you again. This has been Dr. Ben Freeman, again, the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy, also the author of the Foreign Policy Auction. Make sure to check out the new report on the Japan lobby. Uh, Ben, where can people see that report? Oh, uh, great question. Uh, you, you, you can find that and all our research at internationalpolicy.org. Yeah, make sure to check that out. Uh, Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It, it has been an absolute pleasure, Matt and John. Have a great night. <laughs>